Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. And so he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud like of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Only five years after World War II, countries from around the world were embroiled in a new conflict. 21 nations, including Australia, committed air, land and sea forces to South Korea's defence when the North invaded. 17,000 Australians served. But what does the average Australian today really know about the conflict? Angus Horden spoke with Australian War Memorial historian Michael Kelly to discuss the Forgotten War. I'm Angus Horden, and today we're speaking in Canberra at the Defence Force Academy with Michael Kelly. Michael, it's great to have you on Life on the Line. Thank you very much, Angus. Thank you for having me. Michael, we're going to chat at length today about the Korean War. But before we do, I want to understand your passion for it, how you have served in the Army, and now your involvement with the War Memorial. My interesting career started as a child. When I was growing up reading history books at primary school, I saw the, uh, obviously with the First World War and Second World War, there was this little war called Korea. And it sort of always piqued my interest. And I always read little bits about it through high school or through primary school and then high school. And then once I joined the army, I uh, was posted to the infantry. And on joining my battalion, uh, I was told, you will learn your regimental history and there'll be a test. And the first war of the uh, the Australian army, the regular army was uh, the Korean War. So uh, it was uh, that really piqued my interest and because there was a lot of veterans around at the time, we were able to access uh, a number of them. Uh, I was based in Queensland at the time. Uh, some of the Queensland veterans uh, were bumped into just, just in the streets sometimes and just, just chatted to them uh, during Remembrance Days and, and uh, selling badges for uh, Legacy. So just, just uh, conversations with veterans, uh, in, even in the street, and uh, just kept my interest going over all these years. And uh, being now at the War Memorial for over 14 years, it's um, it's been a fantastic uh, way to repay that interesting career, but also to the veterans themselves as well, because Korea really has been that war that fell between the cracks of the Second World War and, and Vietnam. So to, to give them their time in the air, which they well and truly overdue, uh, it's nice to be able to do that in, in my role. So Michael, what made you leave the army? I joined the army at a time when it was uh, during the Ready Reserve Scheme. So I was a member of the inaugural, one of the inaugural platoons that actually went into Kapuka as part of that scheme. So it was a year full-time service and four years part-time service. And by halfway through my part-time service, I'd wrecked my knees and had to be uh, discharged from the army. So uh, any ideas I had of a full-time career in the military was uh, sort of uh, broken early, which was disappointing. But I mean, things have worked out really well since. So uh, I don't regret uh, the way it ended. So how did you leave the army and end up at the War Memorial? I sort of, when I, when I left the army, I went back down to uh, Victoria, where I was living at the time, uh, and just worked a few different jobs. So mainly uh, retail, but um, I always had a hankering to do something with history, but I just, I had no clear idea of what. Uh, it was when my wife and I moved up to Canberra for her job that I thought, oh, the War Memorial. And so I, I literally kicked in the door uh, as a ca- member of the casual staff. And 14 years later, I'm uh, still there. So it's a, it's a, a fantastic thing to be able yeah. to do. Well, good on you. I mean, I, 
I share your enthusiasm for the War Memorial. Like if I ever come to Canberra, it's always to the War Memorial first and then I'll do something else. And, and I totally agree with your passion for history as well. And it's been such a great time for me working there as well because it's been so many different periods of change over the last decade. And even being able to be involved in things like gallery redevelopments and uh, exhibitions and things like that, it's been a real buzz to actually be able to tell the stories of our veterans uh, through the gallery displays and, and uh, interviews and, and things like that. And indeed, before we leave the War Memorial, a large part of that surely has been the impact that the current director, Dr. Brendan Nelson, has brought to the role. Certainly. He certainly has brought a lot of energy and drive. Uh, and you see that uh, in a lot of what's going on with things like the last post ceremony uh, and also a number of the, uh, the the gallery displays like the, the Special Forces exhibition that's on at the moment. So it's a, it's a great, great tribute. Actually, I can testify to that. I saw that exhibit yesterday with Dr. Carl James, who was in charge of it. And it's another excellent production by Carl and the War Memorial. Most definitely. I, I got to work with Carl. Uh, he, he's my colleague now. But I got to work with him when I was a curator uh, in the Heraldry and Technology Centre. Section, uh, on the Second World War uh, redevelopment. So working hand in glove with him, with his history knowledge, but also with myself and another colleague with our objects and history knowledge. We worked really well together as a team and now working in the team with him as a colleague is, uh, is fantastic. I couldn't ask for a better, better role in my life. So Michael, let's chat about the Korean War. What was the background to the start of this conflict? Basically, the background began at the end of the Second World War uh, with the division of into north and south zones on the, along the 38th parallel. But you can draw that back to the Japanese occupation of Korea in 1910. In 1910, Jap Japan annexed Korea and basically tried to white ant or destroy the Korean culture and, and language and things like that and make it part of their uh, Japanese empire. And from there in the 30s, they then invaded China as well. So Korea has been this traditional invasion route uh, for armies ancient and modern uh, over many, many, well, over centuries. But um, as the Second World War came to an end, Russian forces started to enter through Manchuria, in, then into, down into Korea. And the Americans realized that, uh-oh, uh they're going to have a, a Russian presence right on the Japanese doorstep. So they actually put a force ashore and they did agreed the demarcation line was going to be the 38th parallel. So the two zones uh, came into existence in 1945, and they were the North Zone and the South Zone. So they weren't uh, independent countries at this this stage that didn't happen until 1948. But um, basically, the the North Zone was co uh, communist controlled, and the South Zone was capitalist controlled or uh, American controlled. But one of the things that the Japanese had done was basically take out all the heads of the any of the independence movements or, or uh, strong leadership of, of Korea. Uh, so there was no one leader that Korea could really reunite or unite behind uh, at the end of the Second World War when the, the push for independence had really, really come along. So the North Zone under the Russian influence became a staunchly communist and same as the South, it became staunchly capitalist. So you've got uh, Kim Il-sung uh, in the North, uh, who's very much Russian and Chinese backed. Uh, and also in the South, uh, Syngman Rhee, who is very much uh, an American uh, puppet. I guess you'd say. But um, he very much had his own ideas as well. So pretty soon after the demarcation line was drawn across the 38th parallel, there's a uh, very nasty sort of civil war that begins. And so you've got a lot of parties sort of heading north and south to try and destabilise each zone. But there's also uh, a lot of communist sympathy in the south. So there's a lot of uh, almost a revolution of sorts in the south as well. So there's a, uh, a fairly brutal repression, which is uh, uh, undergone in the south, say, in, 19, in the 1940s. But um, as that built up, in the north, the Russians were backing the, the North Koreans. A lot of these North Koreans had a ready, they basically had a ready-made army because they'd, they'd fought a number of them had fought in Russia during the Second World War, but they'd also fought in the uh, the Chinese Revolution as well uh, on the communist side. Uh, and as that 
war had ended, a great portion of the North Korean forces actually came back into North or what had become North Korea in 1948 and formed the North Korean People's Army. So they, they had a, a very much a combat-tested and hardened army uh, with Russian material such as tanks, T-34 tanks, uh, artillery, and even uh, some planes. But uh, the, the South, the Americans didn't want to arm, overly arm Syngman Rhee, who was also quite belligerent uh, and wanted to go north and reunite Korea. So they actually didn't more heavily arm the South Korean, started off as a paramilitary before it became the, uh, the Republic of Korean Army uh, during the Korean War. But uh, they basically had no tanks or heavy vehicles uh, and minimal artillery. So it was a, a very much a paramilitary force rather than a standing army that uh, the North Koreans faced. So Michael, am I correct in seeing a parallel here between what's happening in Korea and later what happens in Vietnam? In a, in a way, yes. Um, Vietnam War is actually running concurrently with the Korean War. So the French are actually fighting uh, the Indochina War at the same time. And the Americans are actually bankrolling the French because of uh, a, a deal with bases, uh, military bases in France. So the uh, the Americans are actually funding a lot of the uh, the French actions that, that they're fighting against the Vietnamese in Vietnam. But uh, the Korean War starts off, uh, which and it catches the Americans quite by surprise. I mean, they, they really shouldn't have been that surprised because they, they were well aware of what was going on, obviously, with their advisors and, and their uh, the military mission in Korea. So when the uh, the North Koreans cross the border in the early hours of the, tw- the 25th of June 1950 and start driving on towards Seoul and then, then down the peninsula, it, it really does catch the Americans largely on the hop. And the infantry division, that's the 24th Division over in uh, Japan at the time, is... In a, in a not a, not a bad state, but they're not in a in a state where they've actually got a lot of heavy weapons and tanks and things like that. So they uh, a task force gets put across very quickly into Korea, which is Task Force Smith, which thinks it's going to have a uh, fairly decent walk in the park against uh, these soldiers from the north who they they don't rate. And Task Force Smith gets uh, well and truly beaten at a place called Osan, and then is forced to withdraw. Uh, the all well, the remnants of it are forced to withdraw back to what then becomes the uh, the uh, the Pusan perimeter. So isn't this interesting? Again, we're seeing a Western force underrating an Asian force. Very much so. And it happens to the French in in Vietnam as well. The colonial masters have that colonial master mentality. They don't rate the locals and it's their own to their own detriment. They they realize well, they realize by the time Dien Bien Phu happens in 1953, 50, or sorry, 54, when the, uh, the the Indochina War ends, that um, the the American well, the Viet Minh are far by by far the superior force. They can move heavy artillery in jungles, literally with manpower alone, which actually gets uh, Viet, uh, Dien Bien Phu is surrounded by high hills, and the Viet Minh actually get heavy artillery pieces up into these hills through terrain which would be impassable in thought to most people and they then shell the uh, the airfield which is in the low ground and the, the French are then forced to capitulate after a pretty serious battle but uh, same thing in Korea they uh, initially underestimate the North Koreans and they think they're uh, going to be a walk in the park and uh, they're anything but initially. There's a lot we can talk about Korea however on this podcast series in the interest of time can we focus on Australia's involvement? Uh, Australia is involved very quickly uh, as the war begins. Literally, the Navy is committed straight away. The uh, the Shoalhaven, the HMAS Shoalhaven and HMAS Bataan are committed uh, as they are. Uh, one's already in Japan and one's about to be relieved. Uh, both of those vessels are then committed to escort duty. So uh, they, they are very much uh, as part of the first convoy going over to Busan. They're, they're providing escort duty. The Air Force, uh, which is 77 Squadron, they had literally just finished packing up their uh, aircraft and had had their uh, goodbye party to Japan and were on their way back to, about to go back to Australia. The morning they wake up from their party, they realise there's something going on in Korea and they literally have to unpack their planes. General MacArthur asks for 77 Squadron personally, which is granted. And they, the Australian pilots are really well-renowned and regarded in Japan by the Americans. 
literally one of the Australian pilots is known as the best air-to-ground gunner uh, in the theatre. And, and because of these, this uh, squadron's reputation, MacArthur wants them. And they are literally flying combat operations back within a week. So uh, flying from uh, the airfield in Japan with a map in their laps uh, straight over the ocean into to, to Korea uh, and then flying combat ops and then flying back. But it's not until the... Uh, the breakout of the Pusan perimeter where the airfields actually start to move onto the Korean peninsula. So it's literally flying by the seat of your pants sort of stuff. I know MacArthur's amazing attack at Incheon isn't an Australian involvement, but it is a game changer in the event. Can we, can we speak about that? Very much so. It's, uh, the, the Australians aren't involved, but uh, British Royal, Royal Marine Commandos are. So it's, uh, it's a Commonwealth, there is a Commonwealth connection to it. But the landing in Incheon allows the, uh, the breakout from the Pusan perimeter a couple of days later. It's basically using uh, landing craft to break into uh, Incheon Harbour and land against seawalls and, and flat areas uh, and then start to push in towards Seoul. What they had to get right here was uh, it's a very high tidal area, so tidal uh, ebbs and flows with uh, with the Incheon Harbour. They had to get it absolutely right for timing, otherwise the uh, the landing craft would have been marooned on mud and would have been easy pickings for the North Koreans. And as it turned out, they got the tides quite right. Uh, they were able to affect the landing and then move in towards Seoul. But uh, the North Korean defence fighting back towards Seoul was quite dogged, so that the Americans didn't get into Seoul as quickly as they would have liked and weren't able to cut off as many North Korean forces as, as they would have liked as, as well uh, in, in the pincer movement that was part of the breakout from the Pusan perimeter. So a lot of the North Korean forces were actually able to escape as, as well, but uh, a number were left behind as holding forces. A lot of people have criticised MacArthur for being a big risk-taker at Incheon. However, they failed to remember that he had so many landings in the Pacific like at Leyte, they put more troops ashore than the Americans did at D-Day. And his experience with amphibious warfare was well known and experienced through the Second World War. Very much. And you can have a podcast series on MacArthur alone. I mean, this uh, landing at Incheon is literally his high tide point. After that, it starts to go downhill. The Australian uh, infantry or the, the army is, is committed uh, in July of 1950. And they don't actually arrive until uh, September, late September, uh, when three RAR uh, arrive in Korea and are then attached to the British 27th Brigade, who are a battalion short in their brigade. And they do a bit of patrol work behind the lines initially uh, and are then involved in MacArthur's operation that crosses the 38th parallel and drives on Pyongyang and then on towards the, uh, the Chinese border. So the Australians see their first uh, ground combat at a place called the Apple Orchard and, and uh, their commanding officer, which is Lieutenant Colonel Charles Green. Uh, he's, he's also uh, seen a lot of combat. He's a 39er from the First World War. He served in the uh, Greece and Crete campaigns. He was uh, had to escape and evade from Crete uh, with some, some other guys, literally taking a boat and sailing away and, and uh, getting back into to Africa that way. Fought in the uh, Pacific campaign and at the age of 25 was the youngest Australian battalion commander of the Second World War, taking over the 2nd 11th Battalion. But a lot of the men he ended up with in Korea as well, people like Bruce Ferguson, Ben O'Dowd, he'd served with them. He'd commissioned Ben O'Dowd in the Second World War and, and uh, uh, these men had never forgotten it and had stayed in the army. But uh, he knew these men, uh, these senior officers of the 3rd Battalion, uh, when he was posted up to command it uh, in, in uh, August of, uh, of 1915. He literally had only weeks to weld uh, basically a battalion that had been on occupation duty since 1945, 46, uh, sorry, when they arrived from Moritai. Basically only had weeks to get them into a combat readiness. And this is uh, a number of men coming back uh, out of Australia as part of what was called K-Force. So they actually, the government actually raised a thousand men, a volunteer uh, force of a thousand men as part of K-Force um, with Second World, World War men. And they were then shipped up to uh, three RAR as well. And K-Force actually continued throughout the war to keep uh, the other battalions, uh, one and two RAR, fill them up and, and make them combat ready as well. So, But three was the first uh, combat unit on the ground. But 
the Apple Orchard was a, a short, sharp action uh, trying to uh, north of Pyongyang, where three RAR attacked a Korean regiment, North Korean regiment, uh, from behind. They they were more focused on the uh, the paratroop American paratroopers that they'd actually cut off and were uh, were taking a, a toll of. And Charlie Green, when he encountered these uh, part of this North Korean force, literally attacked his men off the march. Uh, and uh, it was the untried men that. Uh, were first into combat and, and they excelled and they suffered seven men wounded but the action was a, a cracking success and a North Korean regiment uh, was was put to rout which was uh, which was amazing so, so considering it was a uh, literally a couple of companies that uh, that did the bulk of the attacking against a, a North Korean regiment yeah. so first engagement yeah. great leadership yeah took the initiative and Charlie Charlie Green is a bit over a week later he's uh, killed or mortally wounded and dies of his wounds and he's the only uh, battalion commander in the Royal Australian Regiment to lose his life in uh, combat operations. He was really well regarded and, and could quite well have been one of the future leaders of army even though he hadn't completed high school himself and, and uh, he he was so highly regarded uh, for his leadership that he'd actually been pulled off his uh, command course at Queenscliff halfway through to be sent up to Japan to take over from a, a, an inexperienced uh, battalion commander who had seen service in the second world war but hadn't commanded a battalion he'd been a, as far as a company commander but Charlie Green was so well regarded that he was he was literally pulled off this course halfway through and sent to command three hour hour and, and uh, sent to Korea. What a great loss of a great man! Absolutely, and, and uh, his wife Olwen's written a, a beautiful, beautiful book in tribute uh, to Charlie, uh, and she's she's done so much for uh, Korean veterans, uh, recording their memories, recording their history, and she's she's never forgotten her love for Charlie and uh, never remarried. Well, thanks to you, we won't forget him either. So Korea is largely an army action. But can we just touch a little bit more on the Navy and Air Force's role? All three of the Australian commands fought as separate entities. The Australian Defence Force didn't actually uh, occur until 1975, so they're fighting under American commands. The Navy actually is involved on the West Coast mainly with shipping interdictions and things like that. But uh, in 1951, the uh, the carrier HMAS Sydney is sent up for a combat tour uh, as well. And using the carrier for the first time in Australia's naval history, uh, in the role it was intended to fly combat air patrols and combat operations, they did an amazing job uh, using Sea Fury, uh, Hawker Sea Fury aircraft and also uh, Fireflies. Uh, which is a two-seater uh, recon reconnaissance aircraft, but also can use be used to bomb and strafe as well. But uh, thousands of hours of, of uh, combat airtime attacking uh, bridges, trains, troop uh, build-ups, things like that. So uh, they didn't get so much into the dogfighting, which is more of what the uh, the, the Air Force and the uh, the, the British uh, Navy aviators did. Uh, and also the Americans, but the uh, the Navy flyers were mainly involved in uh, attacking ground targets uh, in North Korea or in North Korean territory, um, but also when the Chinese came in, they were attacking Chinese targets as well. So, but um, the ships were involved in a blockade force, and the uh, the, the the aviators were uh, flying uh, combat operations over the over the ground as well. So, but significantly, as you say, that. Michael, the Air Force and Navy are coming under American direction. Very much. And the uh, and 77 Squadron fight in some very significant actions. In MacArthur's push-up towards the uh, the Chinese border to try and reuni re reunify Korea, the uh, 77 Squadron actually get based at a place called Hamhung, which is uh, up in North Korean territory. And they fly uh, air support uh, when the Chinese actually start to come in and uh, push the, the UN forces back. When the Americans get involved, uh, the Marines and the Army at uh, the Chosin Reservoir, the 77 Squadron actually fly combat patrols or combat operations in support of the US Marines uh, in, at Chosin. But they're also doing, uh, from the literally for the, for the very first week of the war, they're flying operations against troop trains, road transports, any sort of major concentration, supply bases, things like that, they're, they're attacking them. So literally from Japan right through to several different Korean airfields, and mainly they're based around uh, K2 at Seoul. But uh, they, they do see uh, some action up in North Korean airfields as well and, and over Pyongyang. So they, they, they are wide ranging. 
uh, in April 1951, 77 Squadron are withdrawn back to Japan, and they undergo a period of change from Mustang uh, propeller jet uh, propeller fighter, sorry, to the uh, Meteor jet fighter, and this takes a, a little bit of time to do, and they have to get uh, uh, British pilots out from the uh, RAF to help them out because they, there's literally not the pilot power in the RAF at the time to maintain the squadron strength. So the British pilots are not only only training them to flight the jets, then they actually deploy with them with jets as well. And uh, six uh, RAF pilots are actually killed with 77 Squadron, and another one is shot down and taken prisoner, uh, as well as uh, six RAF uh, guys as well. So 77 does see some pretty heavy combat. When they do change over to jets, they are initially deployed up into what's called MiG Alley, up on the Yalu, uh, around the Yalu area, and they come up against the MiG-15. And the MiG-15 is a superior air fighter, uh, has got a tighter turn, higher flight ceiling, and, and is a, just a better fighter in general than the Meteor. And a number of Australian pilots are killed uh, in combat operations against MiGs. And there's only very limited success uh, with Australian pilots shooting down MiGs. What the, the Australians really would have loved was the US Sabrejet, but there was no, no not enough production at the time for the Sabrejet to go into uh, to uh, Australian product or Australian hands. So you see uh, a lot of, um, we stuck with the Meteor, but uh, they then, after they were withdrawn from uh, the MiG Alley, they then sent back down to, uh, to support uh, ground forces in doing uh, air-to-ground attack missions. Michael, when we drove in here today, we drove down Kapyong Road. What's the significance of Kapyong? Kapyong is a battle which is fought by the Australians, uh, Canadians, and uh, the British of the 27th Brigade and New Zealanders. When uh, the Chinese launched their fifth phase offensive coming back down the uh, the peninsula in coming to the war, Kapyong is literally a last-ditch uh, stand in front of Seoul uh, to stop Seoul falling back into Chinese hands once again, or North Korean hands once again. Kapyong, the uh, the first Republic of Korean Army Division, which is forward of, of the Australians who are actually resting at the base of Kapyong Valley, preparing for Anzac Day of all things, they are aware that something's going on. The Chinese actually crash into the Rock Army, uh, South Korean Army, and uh, annihilate pretty much annihilated division and put the, the survivors to flight so they're streaming back down the the, uh, the Kapyong Valley with uh, refugees as well and the Chinese are actually able to infiltrate these uh, refugee columns uh, as they're coming down the valley the brigadier who, who was in charge of 27 Brigade where this where the Australians were serving under had changed uh, brigadier code but, uh, Aubrey code who had seen the initial combat uh, was out of the line having a with a health break that was Brigadier uh, Brian Burke, who was the uh, acting brigadier at the time. So he actually had control of the where he'd placed his forces. And just forward of Kapyong is a triangular series of hills. And the Australians were put on to the, uh, the right flank, the Canadians over on the left. And the Middlesex Battalion was actually meant to be on the forward uh, triangle hill as well, with the Kiwis back down the valley, Kiwi artillerymen down the valley. What had happened was the British Battalion, the Middlesex, were actually forced to go forward. So they, had, they left the hill and were supported by New Zealand gunners. They went forward up the valley to try and actually stop or at least slow down the Chinese offensive, but they ended up being overwhelmed as well and, and having to withdraw. And they, they withdrew in good order, but um, they weren't able then to reoccupy their positions because of the close pursuit and actually had to go back further down the valley towards uh, the Kapyong town uh, and hold a base down there. And, you know, the New Zealanders had to re-register their guns and it was, uh, uh, it was a pretty tight run thing and they couldn't actually get uh, proper registration done before the, the combat started to happen. Uh, on the 23rd of April, so the, the Australians had been expecting to celebrate uh, Anzac Day or commemorate Anzac Day with uh, the Turkish forces and also their British compatriots, but uh, it wasn't to be. They were instead sent into the uh, into their positions on the Cap in the Capiong Valley, uh, and then were uh, fighting um, literally a hand-to-hand -hand action, or what became a hand-to-hand -hand action, uh, very quickly afterwards. 
three RIR's headquarters wasn't actually up in the hills with its uh, with its companies. The brigadier had actually placed the battalion uh, further down in the valley, and so the battalion headquarters further down in the valley. So they weren't actually in full control of what was going on up in the hills. The Chinese attacked uh, out of the refugee column and hit battalion headquarters first. So BHQ was actually fighting the Battle of Capion first before the Ford companies were. So the, the companies were engaged very soon after, but uh, they had to fight a pretty pretty severe uh, and close quarters action uh, down in the valley first, and then they withdrew uh, back down into the, near the Middlesex lines as the battle unfolded. The Chinese hit uh, B and A companies, which were the, the two Ford companies, on uh, slightly separate features uh, in, in the uh, on their hills. They were pretty hard pressed, and B Company actually held held firm. And A Company fought a pretty tough action overnight, but were forced to withdraw, and the whole battalion actually withdrew as as, as a consequence in close combat with the uh, with the Chinese. They couldn't disengage uh, and get away quickly, but uh, they literally fought a withdrawal back down the uh, their their mountain range. And it was the Canadians over on the other hill who were fighting their own battle who were actually able to support. It was about a kilometre away, but using their heavy weapons to shoot across at the Chinese and, and allow the Australians to uh, disengage. But, it was a very, very close-run thing, but uh, you can never also put uh, too much credit on the Kiwis. They, the New Zealand gunners were fantastic. Because they were a bit short of ammunition as well, they were able to use their artillery pieces to very effectively, with short short barrages or short shoots, to uh, stop the Chinese from overrunning Australian positions. And they also supported the Canadians the same way, almost down to individual shells uh, landing in front of uh, foxholes. The, uh, the New Zealand gunners were that good, and uh, they, had, they had a high reputation throughout the entire Korean War. And Michael, what sort of numbers are we talking about, numbers of Chinese attacking us? You're literally looking at an, enti- an entire division, so over 15,000 Chinese by this stage. And how many guys have we got deployed? Uh, the Australians have got, uh, I think it's less than less than 800 uh, as, as part of the battalion at the time. Uh, the Canadians have had a similar figure, so a brigade is roughly around about 1,500 men, but uh, with, with combat effectiveness at the time, it was, it was a bit less than that as well. So they're literally fighting, a brigade is fighting off uh, a division-sized uh, attack. Yeah, so, so there's this huge disparity, and despite holding the high and good ground, the fact is you know you're flanked from behind, and it's really a desperate struggle. Very much. Kapyong is, an, is a desperate struggle, and the Australians prove their mettle uh, time and time again in holding the Chinese back. And when one of the companies puts a radio call out asking for assistance, they get onto uh, the US Marines, who are not too far away. But the US Marines actually don't believe that the Australians are there anymore. They believe they've been wiped out. But the Australians hold on and, and are actually able to withdraw in good order back down into the Kapyong Valley and, and rejoin the battalion. The Canadians hold firm on their hill, and they're able to, to stay there until relieved by the Americans uh, on Anzac Day. Uh, so this is a it's a it's a big fight and were the Canadians as pressed as we were very much so they weren't as hard hit initially the Chinese had, had literally focused on the Australians trying to uh, literally break the brigade apart but uh, the Canadians also had uh, very much uh, foxhole to foxhole fighting and, and uh, a lot of hand to hand in the front line before the Chinese actually withdrew from their positions so let's go back to the Kiwi artillery that's tasked with the support what sort of units are they fighting with they literally they've got uh, the, the ubiquitous 25 pounder uh, artillery piece they're yeah. one of World the queen, War II vintage, yeah. queen of the battlefield Great in World gun. War II. Yeah. so that's this is their artillery piece that stays with them throughout the entire Korean War and they they are so effective with it they uh, they uh, have a huge and high reputation and the Australians loved working with them the entire war They've actually got New Zealand uh, Ford observers, much like you see uh, in Vietnam with Long Tan, uh, with Maureen Stanley. You've got uh, Kiwi Ford observers, officers uh, and their parties uh, able to call in artillery strikes. But the because of the, the hills at the time, a lot of the radio communications were slightly dodgy as well. So uh, getting, getting the artillery to come in when it was needed was uh, were a bit fraught as well. So 
Was there any other support for our forces? Were we able to have any air support? Most definitely. Uh, US Marines uh, and US uh, uh, Air Force fighter planes supported the, uh, the Australians at Kapyong. Uh, and unfortunately, a, uh, a nasty incident occurred with a uh, Corsair dropping napalm in Australian positions uh, and it killed a number of guys, and a couple of guys, and, and badly burnt a number of others. But uh, the marker panels, even though they were laid out, uh, weren't seen. But um, they unfortunately dropped their napalm too short and it uh, went through the Australian positions and one of the veterans I've spoken to uh, over the years had been in a foxhole right near where the canister came down and the napalm moved so quickly it missed his foxhole but uh, burnt a few of his friends so he he uh, remembered that quite vividly so when he was when he was talking to me about uh, his experiences at Capion. But it was really the artillery that did most of the saving for us. Very much. You cannot give too much credit to the New Zealanders. And Michael, is there not a parallel here with Long Tan in Vietnam, where we've got a small Australian force literally going to be overwhelmed by massive numbers? And again, I mean, admittedly, we had 105 millimetres, but you've got this great artillery, pinpoint accuracy, great calls with our observers that really saved the day. This action does does actually save Seoul, even though there is a bit more of a withdrawal. The Chinese push isn't actually halted outside of the city and then pushed back the following month. Yeah, so it blunts the attack. Very much. So what does MacArthur say about our troops? MacArthur has been relieved at this stage. Uh, he basically, as he's been replaced by General Matthew Ridgway, MacArthur got, when he crossed the, the 38th parallel, rather than actually just stopping and uh, adhering to what the UN mandate was at the time, which is the uh, saving of the Republic of Korea, he pushed to go forward and misread or misinterpreted the intelligence he was being fed back. And his intelligence people missed this entirely, was that um, if they had crossed the 38th parallel, the Chinese warned that they would come in and stop their border being threatened uh, and also uh, look after the, uh, the the North Koreans. What MacArthur missed after he crossed the 38th parallel with aircraft flying overs, signals intelligence and, and even human intelligence with, with deserters and, and other, other things like that. Several hundred thousand Chinese crossing the Yalu and being uh, sort of hidden in trees and, and under um, away from air, aerial observation. So they, they put a massive force across the Yalu to oppose MacArthur. And as MacArthur got closer or his forces got closer and closer to the Chinese border, the Chinese acted. And there's an old Chinese saying of open the gate, entice the dog, close the gate and beat the dog. And this is what they did very much so as the American and South Korean forces uh, drove on towards, towards the Yalu. The, American, the Chinese closed the door behind the South Koreans and the Americans and then started to beat them. And then you see the entire battalion cease to exist. South Korean regiments get wiped out. The Marines, uh, British and also the uh, who, who are serving alongside the US Marines, fight a huge, they don't call it withdrawal, they call it an attack in the opposite direction, but they, they, have, uh, they have a fighting withdrawal back to the ports to get away. But it's, it's a huge action where they, they are supported by uh, massive air support, artillery, they fight this withdrawal against overwhelming odds of Chinese odds and, and are able to get away and are, are evacuated off the beaches by the Navy. And as you said, Inchon was MacArthur's high watermark, but then he is disgraced. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's stripped of command and it must have been a terrible thing for him and indeed the whole forces of the Allied servicemen in Korea at that time. I think MacArthur had lost his luster when the Chinese had hit uh, his forces really hard and morale was at a rock bottom ebb and MacArthur had wanted to use the nuclear option and that didn't agree with Truman and there was a, there was a number of uh, politicking things that going on behind the scenes not just in the, on the combat front and when Truman relieved MacArthur and put uh, Matthew Ridgway who's a, uh, a World War II general as well I mean famous for Bastogne and things like that in D-Day. He's, a, he's a, uh, a guy who comes in with a more of a gentle hand and he actually wants to uh, reinvigorate the morale of his men and get them fighting 
and get them winning victories again. So after the Kapyong battle, the UN forces go on to the offensive and there's limited operations that are conducted by the UN, UN command forces going forward. And that uh, basically concludes in October of 1951 when Operation Commando is run and won by uh, the Commonwealth Division and the five divisions of the USI Corps uh, moving up to the Jamestown line and, and occupying that. And the Battle of Mariang San is fought uh, there. But um, that's the last time the uh, the line really moves forward. After that, the uh, the uh, armistice agreements begin initially at Quezon, and then uh, there's a period of several months where, even though there's a bit of action going on on the front line, they don't actively attack each other whilst these armistice negotiations are going on. Basically, the, it gives the Chinese time to to dig in and literally dig in almost like the Western Front. So there's the, they've got a massive trench system behind their uh, forces by January 1952. So can you give us an overview now of the course of events for the rest of the war. Yeah, basically become what they call the static war, but it's anything but. It takes on tones of, as the armies have gone on to dug in front lines, takes on the tone of something of, of the Western Front. So you've got patrol actions and raids and things like that going on throughout the rest of the war, whilst uh, little bits of ground change hands here and there on the East and the West Coast. But um, there, there's some fairly significant actions fought on raiding Chinese positions. Uh, the Australians take part in a number of them as well. And they also take part in a uh, in defending a last-ditch Chinese assault in the last three days of the war in the Samachon Valley at a place called the Hook. Uh, the Hook's been attacked uh, literally since Oct- uh, October '52, which is when the Chinese first tried to get it on mass from the the Marines who were holding it. But the Chinese put in one last-ditch effort, even though the armist- they know the armistice is getting signed in a couple of days, that to try and actually take significant high ground overlooking the Imjin River and giving them an attack route straight into Seoul again. This battle is fought by the, the US Marines and the Australians uh, with air and artillery support, again, with the New Zealanders and, and basically the entire I-Corps and uh, uh, artillery, defeating this uh, division-sized Chinese attack against no more than a couple of brigade-sized positions. So it's, a, it's again, this really last-ditch fingernail sort of stuff in the last couple of days of the war. And the Chinese are, are beaten back with with massive casualties. And basically, an entire division is, is uh, not quite wiped out, but... A, is rendered ineffective by the casualties they suffer at the hands of the defenders. So, Michael, by war's end, what are our casualties for this conflict? The Australians suffer 340 men killed during the war. 43 of those are still missing. There's uh, a chap called Ian Saunders, whose father uh, is one of the missing, who is uh, con- is still uh, agitating for uh, remains to be identified uh, and is doing a great job trying to have those uh, those men found and, and uh, given a, a burial. Yeah, rightly so. Yeah, and there's about 1,200, a bit over 1,200 men wounded as well. So because the Air Force uh, casualty figures are a bit uh, sketchy, uh, there could be a lot more, but uh, there's, there's uh, about 1,216 men wounded. 29 Australians are taken prisoner. Uh, six of those are from the Ardo and the rest uh, are from the uh, from the army, and uh, the, there should be uh, one more figure uh, from the RAF pilot I mentioned uh, before, who was shot down and captured. Yes, as well. I was wondering about him. What happened? Yeah, he he uh, he was released at the end of the war as well, but um, and went home. But uh, we don't unfortunately we don't count uh, because there are RAF attached to to our squadron. They're not counted as part of our casualties, sadly, which is uh, what they, what they should be. So, what was the homecoming like for those Korean boys? A lot of it was. Um, quite mixed. I mean, one and two RAR who fought uh, the Static War, supporting three, got to go home as full battalions and have their parade. Three RAR stayed in, in theatre for the entire war. But uh, kind of like Vietnam with replacements, they had uh, men rotating on an individual basis in and out of the battalion so that they, they did their year in country and then went back home. And some guys went back up for a second go. But um, when they got home, 
a lot of the guys were turned away from RSLs. The current head of the Korean War Veterans Association of Australia, Big Day, when he got home to Victoria, uh, went to his RS, local RSL and they shut the door in his face and said, well, come back when you fought a real war sort of thing. And they, were, they were quite condescended to. And, and uh, Michael, I've heard of that insult happening, sadly, to our Vietnam boys. I hadn't heard that it was extended to the Korean boys. It's just disgraceful. It's terrible. And this is veterans of, of wars... And a number of these guys had fought in the Second World War as well, coming back. And then, I mean, I think they were they were, they were able to join the RSL, had joined the RSL anyway. But guys who had just fought in Korea were uh, were not ignored, but they were they were not treated with the respect that they they were due. Because I mean, they did fight a very nasty, um, very nasty war. And we haven't even spoken about the weather. Yeah, the cold and the heat. It's it's both extremes in Korea. Uh, literally at the hook in July of 1953, the stench of death there from the rotting corpses from previous battles from the months previous was extreme and obscene. And the guys who served up on there felt they could smell the place before they even got near it. It was that bad, like a charnel house. And they they, they said there's accounts of diggers turning over uh, trenches, trying to dig out trenches and, and re-dig the trenches and coming across body parts every turn of the earth. And the the heat, the summer heat in Korea is is obscene. It can be tropical and hot and uh, fighting in those conditions is, is terrible. On the opposite, the, the winters are almost like what... Uh, German soldiers, I guess, would have experienced in Russia during the Russian campaign. Extreme cold, weapons freezing, vehicles, engines freezing up, things like that. I mean, they, were, they had to uh, really care for their uh, their weapons and things like uh, like that during during the uh, combat to make sure they remained in working order. So uh, special uh, oils, heating engines, even to the extent of lighting fires under their trucks to keep their the oil loose. And, and we heard the Germans do a lot of that. Yep, and it, it had parallels yeah. in Korea too. So the war ends, but Australia's involvement in Korea doesn't end. No, it, and it still hasn't. Uh, we are signatories to the armistice. So if the North does, heaven forbid, invade, uh, we are technically straight away at war with supporting the Republic of Korea uh, and their right to uh, their sovereignty. But um, in 1953, we changed over from war footing to a peace enforcement footing. So three RAR remained in Korea until 1954. Uh, two RAR left Korea in 1954 and then were deployed to Malaya in 55 as part of the Malayan emergency. One RAR went back up into Korea over the 1954-55 period. And the last Australian troops uh, were withdrawn in 1957. So, But uh, we still have a, a UN advisor uh, up there up there uh, these days as part of the UN Commission. So it, um, it still has resonance today with not just the armistice, but uh, also it very much informs our uh, defence policies, Navy, Army and Air Force uh, today with, with looking at what China's doing in the South China Sea, the Korean belligerents as well with, with uh, the Kim family still in control. It, uh, it still very much has a, an effect on our defence policies and, and our forward look. So how would you rate our role in the war and its importance? I think our, the size of our force is relatively small, and this is something that President Truman actually uh, commented on earlier on in the Korean War. Australia could field pretty much six full infantry divisions by the end of the Second World War, uh, regular AIF and, and militia. And by four years later, they could they literally could not field one battalion. And it's K-Force that, uh, that basically saves the fledgling uh, Australian regular army from becoming an insignificance. So it, it has massive effect on the Army, uh, Navy and Air Force in a lot of ways in its ability to uh, maintain its strength post-war. But it's one of those things where you wonder, it, it's if it wasn't for Korea, what would have happened to our, our defence forces? Because the numbers, about 17,000 Australians served in total uh, in Korea. 
but uh, the army was actually able to uh, fill three battalions. The Air Force had obviously 77 squadron and also transport squadrons uh, flying over there as well. And the Navy had a number of destroyers and um, frigates, plus the, the Sydney that got, went up as well. So each played its significant role and played its part. So despite the small numbers of our force uh, over the three years of the war, they contributed materially to the sovereignty of the, or maintaining the sovereignty of the Republic of Korea, but also um, helping uh, stop the war as well. So I think they did, they did play their part and play it well. So why is Korea today known as the Forgotten War in Australian society? Even in 1951, after the Battle of Mariang San, uh, when the lines went quiet or, or static, the, the diggers noticed that the media and all the people, all the interest sort of disappeared from Korea. And they started calling themselves Forgotten, even in 19, uh, late 1951 and early 52, uh, when the interest actually seemed to go away from all the media because the, the, the sexy part of the war had finished. So it was now this long drawn out negotiation, but still two years of combat. So I think even the diggers had started to call themselves forgotten uh, during the war, but where the real term comes from is it fell in between the end of the Second World War and the war weariness of the Australian public, and then the Vietnam War, where it was initially supported, but then by so the, the late 1960s, a public opinion had turned uh, well and truly against Vietnam. And the idea of remembering past wars was was really on, on the nose with a lot of people. Not all of the nation, there were still many that remembered, but people remembered World War II because of the size of it and Vietnam because of the unpopularity of it. But Korea just disappeared uh, and just off the nation's psyche. But historians, soldiers, even members of the of family members who had lost loved ones over there always remembered Korea. So it was never truly forgotten. But the, 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 wider, na the wider nation's memory had faded. So what lessons could we take from Korea today? We certainly look at um, how we uh, war fight. I mean, the, the doctrine and, and all that sort of thing has changed. But how we operate with allies, uh, looking at um, we had to fight well, fight alongside uh, Americans, Turks, Filipinos, Thais. There was a 21 nations of the United Nations that, that fought there, fighting alongside allies who have different weapons, different ammunition, equipment structures, just how to operate in, in a military theater with allied armies who are using different equipment to you is one of the lessons that uh, is still sometimes being still learned uh, in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and uh, current conflicts. But uh, just looking at how we operate uh, on that inter-allied sphere is, is where we still draw lessons from, say, the Second World War, Korea, and, and even Vietnam, and learn the, learn the lessons and look back in history to see what those can teach us and how we can actually carry on into future operations with allied nations uh, without minim minimal fuss, but um, and keeping the politics out. So, Michael, we've just seen the Winter Olympics finish. North Korea and South Korea pulled a sporting team. What hope have we got for the future? I think it, it bodes really well for the Koreas, the two Koreas. There may not be a chance to pull down the walls of the DM demilitarized zone, but having that greater access to each other's countries or each other's people mean that families who've been separated by the Korean War for over 65 years now have greater access to each other, hopefully, and, and uh, visits will be hopefully more reciprocal and, and uh, the future looks rosy. But there's the, the great achievement of the North and South Korea uh, industrial zone as well around Kaesong, where industry is, is maintained by North and South in, in this particular zone as well. It does have its moments where uh, the border does get closed, but looking at the Olympics and looking at um, positivity that sport can bring to, to nations, I, th I think the future looks pretty good for Korea on, on that front. Michael Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your service with the Army, and especially thank you for bringing to life the service of our veterans in Korea, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, particularly 3RAR, whose deeds have been outstanding and are so understated today. It's a war that must not be forgotten, and thanks to you, it won't be. 
Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Angus. You can find the Australian War Memorial online at www.awm.gov.au and on social media. And do look up more of our conversations with Australian War Memorial historians in our podcast feed. Already out this season are the episodes Australia in Afghanistan with Dr. Rhys Crawley and Beyond the Legend with Dr. Carl James. Last year, Thomas Kay covered the Special Forces exhibit that was also mentioned in this episode. For that conversation, listen to Australia's Special Forces with Dr. Carl James. And last year, I discussed the Nazi Soviet front in World War II in the Eastern Front with David Sutton. I also interviewed an Air Force veteran and now council member of the Australian War Memorial in our second episode, number two, Sharon Bowne. And finally, I spoke with the director, the Honourable Dr. Brendan Nelson, in Remembrance Day with Dr. Brendan Nelson. If you haven't yet, be sure to check those out. You can get in touch with us on social media. We're Life on the Line podcast on Facebook and Instagram and LOTL pod on Twitter. Join the conversation there. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and our email address is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Subscribe in your podcast app of choice to get all veteran conversations on Tuesdays and bonus episodes like this chat with Michael Kelly on Fridays. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget...